0: John 3:31 to 36 He who comes from heaven John 3:31 He who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth he who comes from heaven is above all what he has seen and heard of that he bears witness And no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll show us how important it is to exalt Christ and how important it is to hear and listen to the words of Christ. There is no other source of truth. There is no other source of salvation. We ask that we will have great confidence in this fact that only by the word of Christ are we saved and only by focusing on Christ is there anything that's good and right and wise for us. We pray that we will have great confidence in this and will be able to share this confidence with others that they might be saved. Teach us, Lord, to believe in the Son. Teach us, Lord, to believe in his words because they have come from you, the Father. For we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, in chapter 3, John, at toward the end of the chapter, John the Apostle, is away, in a way transitioning from John, who immersed people in water, to Christ in chapter 4. Because after this chapter, we're not going to hear much, or if at all, about John. We will hear barely about him in chapter 5. But practically, John who immersed people in water preparing people as a forerunner to Christ he is ending right here and his words are ending right here in John 3:31 to 36 there is a transition remember from last time what was the occasion for these words of John the occasion for these words of John was a controversy or a question that arose because Jesus with his disciples, they were baptizing people, they were immersing in water. John was already doing that and his disciples were already doing that. And so a question or dispute, a controversy, a discussion arose. Chapter 3, verse 25, it says, therefore a discussion arose based on this. And they wanted to know, well, John, he takes the opportunity when they were wondering in whose camp they were. Whose party were they going to affiliate with? Whose disciple would they be? John took that opportunity to minimize himself, to show his true place in relation to his ministry of Christ, his ministry of preaching Christ. He did so last time when we saw John's great humility, a humility that we must repeat. And we said from John 3.30 that we ought to also have this mindset He must increase, but I must decrease. Whenever there are factions, whenever there are parties, whenever there are conflicts like this, we have to understand our proper place. Now, after establishing our proper place in chapter 3, 22 to 30, John then focuses his attention on the superiority of Christ. He focuses his attention on the superiority of Christ, and he does so in various ways in 331 to 36. He does so to show that our focus, our attention, our love, our devotion, it should only be on Christ and the words of Christ. It should only be there. We could say that John 331 to 36 is a paragraph or a nutshell of what he has already been saying, John the Apostle has been saying of Christ in chapter one, verse one to 18, where the focus was on Christ and the work of Christ, the person and the work of Christ. We could also say that our paragraph here in John three is elaborated in Hebrews chapter one. In Hebrews chapter one, the whole chapter is a chapter to exalt the superiority of Christ. And for that matter, we could say the book of Hebrews is devoted to the superiority of Christ. Christ and Christ alone, his person and his work, who he is and what he came to do on our behalf. That's in the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter one about his deity, chapter two about his priesthood. And that continues on throughout the book. Those kinds of issues are brought up in Hebrews. Another place we might look is Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 also exalts the person and work of Christ. The Bible does this because we are apt. We have a propensity to be distracted by the controversies and the things that happen to us in this world. So John takes this opportunity with this controversy or discussion that arose. He takes the opportunity to, to focus his disciples on the person and work of Christ, on the word of Christ. That's what we have here in John 3, 31. Let's now explore, let's see how he explains how we ought to be focused on Jesus Christ and him alone. Firstly, in 3, 31, he who comes from heaven is above all. He who comes, I'm sorry, he who comes from above Is above all. Now, when he says this, he's talking about the origin of Jesus Christ. He's saying that Jesus Christ, he came from heaven. He descended from heaven. Correct? He said that he descended in 313. Jesus says of himself, And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even, or that is, the Son of Man. So, the one who descends from heaven is above all. He's not talking about angels. He's talking about Christ. Christ, His origin uh, origin is from heaven. He descended from heaven. His incarnation, it had to be planned or purposed in heaven, decreed in heaven, and then it took place on the earth. He's not meaning angels, he's talking about Christ himself. He came from heaven. And he came uniquely from heaven. Here also, he's not talking about the body or the flesh of Jesus Christ. He's not meaning that. Some misinterpreters throughout church history have said that Jesus was not born of a virgin, but he had a body that was a celestial body that descended from heaven. John here is not talking about Jesus' physical body. He's talking about Jesus' person. Jesus' person, the Son of God, is the one who descended from heaven, who came from heaven. He's not talking about the body of Christ. The physical body of Christ obviously became flesh through the miracle of the virgin birth. Matthew chapters 1 and 2, Luke chapters 1 and 2, describe that miraculous event. Also prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah seven fourteen. So, he who comes from above is above all, it has to do with Christ as the Son of God who came from heaven and was born of a virgin. That's what he means by that. But then he contrasts it. Verse 31. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth in this way i believe he's using an idiom an axiom and saying he who is of the earth is from the earth meaning everybody else everybody else he doesn't mean just himself he's not talking about himself because john the one who immersed john is one who had words from god so he's not saying that he didn't preach the words of God, that he was not a prophet of God. In the second part of verse 31, he's speaking about everybody else. If our origin is from earth and we don't have any supernatural revelation, then we're only going to speak of the things of the earth. We're only going to speak speak of earthly, temporary, physical matters. We're only going to be concerned about temporary Physical, material matters. We're not going to be concerned about heavenly things. That's what he means here. So that's the way everybody else is, right? Everybody else, we don't receive in a revealed, miraculous sense as the holy prophets and the holy apostles did the words of God. He's talking generally about everybody else. We are from the earth, our origin is from the earth, we did not originate in heaven and we speak of the things of the earth. Unless we are converted, unless we are convinced about the word of Christ in the Bible, unless, of course, we are a holy prophet or a holy apostle, then we wouldn't be in this category. But he's speaking generally of this. By the way, also, in verse 31, since he is speaking of everyone else, generally of mankind, all men... From the beginning till the end of the world, we are of the earth, we are from the earth, we speak of the earth. If our origin is from the earth, we did not originate in heaven. That's an important point to make as well, because there are some within Christendom, within Christianity, one of the first ones to believe that we actually originated in heaven was a man called Origen or Origen. He spelled his name O R G E O R I G E N O R I G E N. And in the original language, his name would have been Origen. And he believed, and he was a theologian and a pastor. He wrote books, and he believed in the pre-existence of the soul. He believed that, we, as humans, pre-existed as spirits in heaven before God sent us to the earth. And today, since the 1800s, there is a major cult within Christianity, a major cult, false religion, that teaches the same. The Mormons, the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They also say that we existed in heaven when The Heavenly Father and His numerous wives procreated. They have physical bodies there in heaven. They procreate. They come together all the time. And when they come together, then the goddesses of our Heavenly Father produce spirit babies. Not physical babies, though they are physical beings. They produce spirit babies. And that's how we used to live in heaven before our own parents procreated, and then we obtained a physical body on the earth. But this passage rejects that. This passage says we are of the earth, from the earth, and we speak of the earth. Our origin is here. Our origin is not in heaven. Whether our spirits or our bodies, our origin is here on the earth. And even the body of Christ, his physical body, originated on the earth. Further, verse 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. He reiterates what he just said in verse 31. He's reiterating and summarizing in one phrase or one sentence, he who comes from heaven is above all. He is above all. He's above all the things of the earth. And he's even above all of the angels of heaven, whether the good angels or the fallen angels. He is above all of them. He is superior to everyone. His origin is from heaven. Therefore, he is superior to everyone else by his very nature and by his very words, by his very purposes, by by his very values. Whatever there is about Christ is superior to everyone else. Everyone else. This immediately excludes all of the other categories and all of the other parts of creation that there exists. He is superior to all of them because his origin was from heaven. Further, not only does he speak of his origin, verse 32, he speaks of his words. His words, 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness. What he has seen and heard means what Christ has seen and heard from the Father, he testifies of that to us. Now he is saying that everything Jesus says is a testimony, which means he is a faithful witness, as it says that he is the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 1. He is the faithful and true, and even chapter 2, he's the faithful and true witness, and that is he heard and saw things that the Father wanted him to say, and that's what he revealed to us. John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 49, 12, 49. Actually, let's uh, let's actually um, start at verse 44, 12, 44, which will bring together both his incarnation and his testimonies, 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. In verse 45, he says, He who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. So just as Jesus beheld the Father, if we behold Jesus, we behold the Father, we see the Father. And further, the words that Jesus speaks, he speaks just as the Father told him to speak. So that means, Jesus' words are not ultimately, Jesus' words, they are the words of the Father. That means anyone who has a, makes a claim to know God, who makes a claim to know God the Father, anyone who makes that claim cannot make that claim in truth unless he believes in the Son. If you believe in the Son, then you believe in the Father. If you don't believe in the Son, then you do not believe in the Father. 1 John chapter 2, Verse 22, 1 John, chapter 2, and verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Who is a liar? The liar is the one that denies Jesus is the Christ. Well, what does it mean to be the Christ? It means to be the Son, the Son of God. Because he further says, this is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the one who denies the Father and the Son. Well, wait a minute. How did he bring the Father into that equation? Because if you deny Jesus is the Christ, you're denying he's the Son, the Son of God. And if He is the Son of God, then you have to ask, who's the Father? And if you deny the Son, you deny the Father, He says. In verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. It means he denies the Father. The Father is not in agreement with the one who denies the Son of God. But if you confess the Son of God, then the Father is in agreement with you. You also belong to the Father and the Father belongs to you. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So everything hinges on what we believe about Jesus Christ and the words of Christ. If we believe in the words of Christ, then we belong to God the Father. Now, that will eliminate all false religions right there. In the immediate context, it eliminates Jewish unbelievers because they denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They denied that. The vast majority of them denied that. So it immediately addresses them. But also throughout history, it immediately addresses, or it um, further addresses, Mohammedans, Muslims. The religion of Islam denies that Jesus is the Son of God. They deny that categorically. They denounce it, they call it blasphemy, And they say that they belong to God, but they don't belong to God because they deny the sonship of Christ. They cannot deny the sonship of Christ and say God is for them. God is with them. It cannot happen. And we can go on from there to other religions. If we deny the true identity and words of Christ, we don't belong to the father, God, the father. Because Jesus has testified of that. Further in John 3.32. John 3.32. John says, And no man receives his witness. And no man. Now this is John who immersed in water. John the immersionist. He's saying no man receives his witness. When he says no man, he is generalizing. He's saying that... It is very rare for those to believe in Christ, for people to believe in Christ. It's very rare for that happens. He says, no man receives his witness. is a general statement. It's not an absolute statement because the next sentence in verse 33, he who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. So John is just using a blanket statement to speak of the uncommon nature of true faith in Jesus Christ. No man has received his witness. John, the immersionist, is not the only one who speaks like this. In John chapter 1, John the Apostle also said so. John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 10. John the Apostle says the same as John, the forerunner of Christ. John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. There too, John the apostle generalizes and says, the world did not know him and his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. Very few among the Jewish people received him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believed in his death and resurrection for their forgiveness and eternal life. Very few of his own Jewish people did. This is a truth throughout Scripture. This should not surprise us, and it should not alarm us. If it alarms us, we can be discouraged. We should not be discouraged by this. This is a truth throughout Scripture that the vast majority of people who claim to be believers, who claim to know and understand and believe the words of God, they don't really believe in them. They don't believe in the words of God. It happened from the beginning of the world and it will happen until the end of the world. There will always be a few. The Bible calls them the remnant, the remnant that will be saved. Examples, common examples, which should be common knowledge to everyone. In Adam and Eve's family, did everyone in his family, his original family, did everyone in his family believe? We know explicitly that Cain did not believe. He did not, right? How about then among Cain's descendants? Nobody, as far as we know. How about in the family of Abraham? Abraham had only two sons. Among the two sons, 50% right there, we have Isaac who did and Ishmael who did not. He only had those two sons Um, in terms of initially with his his, uh, wife and with his wife as a concubine, Hagar. He had those two. Later he had others, but early God told him no to Ishmael and yes to Isaac. God chose Isaac and rejected Ishmael. And then when we come to Isaac and Rebekah, who did they have? They had Jacob and Esau. There too, it was 50 and 50. Not the whole family, not all the children, only part of them. And that's a huge percentage. If you only have two sons, one is chosen and believes, another is rejected and disbelieves. That's one or, or 50, 50 in one family. Correct? And this is the way it is throughout the whole Bible. The Apostle John, uh, excuse me, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Romans 9, 27. Using the example of what Isaiah preached. Romans 9, 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel that is physical Israel who were numerous in the millions tens of millions Romans 9:27 And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea it is the remnant that will be saved for the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. They are as numerous as the sand of the sea, yet only a remnant of them are saved, he says, because God is going to execute his judgment upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Further, speaking of judgment, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed, God could have completely wiped out the nation of Israel. Only one man in all of Sodom and Gomorrah was saved, Lot. All the rest were destroyed or reprobates, proved that they were wicked. Only Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's saying here that he could have left only one person or nobody completely destroyed the whole of Israel and left nobody. But he left a few in the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. He speaks of this same truth. Romans 11 with another example. Romans 11.1. 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Right there. In this paragraph, he has three examples or three periods of time that he uses to illustrate. He says in verse 1, God has not rejected his people, has he? And by that, he means God has not eliminated absolutely 100% of the Jewish people, has he? And the, the answer of Paul is no, because God has chosen me. And he calls himself a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul was not excluded from salvation. He was one in the time of the apostles, one among a few who actually did believe. Further, he says, this also happened in the days of Elijah. In the time of Elijah, about 850 BC, about 900 years before the time of the apostle Paul, in 850 BC, Elijah also has to run for his life, he's fearing for his life, Because the wicked people of Israel have murdered the prophets of God. And Elijah says, I alone am left. And they're looking to kill me too. They're looking to assassinate and murder me too. And God says, wait a minute. You're not alone. Don't be discouraged. There's 7,000 in your nation. Now, one plus 7,000 is good. It will help us and encourage us and make us feel better. That's what it did for Elijah. But also think about this remnant of the 7,000. If we calculate based on some statistics at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, which was relatively about a century or maybe a century and a half before the time of Elijah, there would have been, there would have been at least, at the very, very least, seven million people in the nation of Israel in the time of Elijah. And God tells Elijah, wait, among the seven million, I have 7,000. Now, seven million, compare that to 7,000. 7,000 is a good number if we're thinking we're we're not all alone. But it's not a good number in comparison to the rest because that's only one out of a thousand people. It's only one out of a thousand people who claim to know God. We're not talking about the, the idolatrous people in other nations. We're talking about those who claim to know God. Only one out of a thousand in the day of Elijah. That's the way it was. But it's not just in Isaiah's day. It's not just in Adam's day or Abraham's day. It's also in our day, because Romans 11 says, 11.5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And by that, he's meaning not just in the time of the Roman Christians, but he's speaking of the time from that point forward, because this is the way it always works throughout history the way it always works throughout history, is that no man receives his witness. That is, a few do. A few do. Like he says in John 3, 33, he who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. When we believe in the testimony of Christ, we are putting a seal to this fact that God is true. We seal up the fact that God is true. He, he is, himself is true. He speaks truth. His son speaks truth. His words, written words are truth. The spirit is the spirit of truth. We testify to all of this. We confirm with the seal that this is indeed the case which means if we don't, we say the opposite, correct? Whether people admit it or not, if they reject the words of Christ, if they disobey the words of Christ, if they don't believe in the words of Christ, then they're also doing the opposite in calling God a liar. So will we call God true or will we call him a liar? Romans 3, 4, let God be found true, though every man a liar, Whenever there is disagreement or dissonance, we must agree with God so that He is found true. 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. 1 John 5, 7. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. He says, "The spirit is the truth." Further, verse nine, verse nine. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this that he has borne witness concerning his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this: that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son of God, he who has the Son has the life. He does, who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. We're told in verse seven that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. We are also told in verses nine and following that if we receive the witness of men, which we do right? He's, by if he means since we do. It is a practice for us to believe in other men in terms of when they testify to something, let's say in a court of law, we believe them. Or even if we believe a friend, we believe what he says, we believe his testimony about something. Well, but if we do that among men like that on a daily basis, we should do it on the basis of what God says. If God testifies to something, his witness is greater than men. It's one thing for us to believe one another, but it's a greater thing to believe in God because God is the one telling us. He's the one testifying of this. And of what has he testified? God has testified concerning his one and only son, verse nine. So what God says about his son, we ought to believe. And if we don't believe it according to verse 10, we make God a liar because we don't believe what God says about His only Son. It's better for us to be the liars and God to be the truth teller than us to be the truth teller and God the liar. It's either one way or the other. Only one or the other. And if we do receive His witness, we have eternal life. Verse 34, John 3, 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 34, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Throughout the book of John, this phrase God has sent, or the Father sent me. Phrases like that, with the word sent there, are over 30 times in the book of John. John the Apostle encourages us, insists that we understand and believe that when we see Christ, we are actually seeing God. He was sent from God. That is a a factual statement or a fact of history and we should believe that fact of history based on these words, based on the testimony of what we have here in the Bible. We have to believe that. And not only do we have to believe that part, but we have to believe that He spoke the words of God. He actually spoke the words of God. And that part in verse 34, the first part of verse 34 is actually a summary of of what John has been saying in 32 and 33. That is, he's from God, and he speaks the words of God. But then he adds something to it. For he gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. Now, the he who gives... It could be the Father who gives, or it could be the Son who gives. But even if the Son gives, the Son doesn't give unless the Father gives to the Son to give to us. Okay? In the Scripture, that's the way it works. The Father gives to the Son the ability to send the Holy Spirit. Even in the book of John, John says it that way. For example, in John 15, 26, John fifteen twenty six, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. See there? This, the origin of the sending of the Spirit is from the Father, but also from the Son. So ultimately, the Spirit comes to us from the Father, but the mediator of sending the Son is, I'm um, sending the Spirit, is the Son of God. So from Father to the Son, and then from the Son to us, is the Holy Spirit. Firstly, though, in verse 34, who is it that receives the Spirit without measure? Who receives the Spirit without measure? The prophets don't receive the Spirit without measure. We do not receive the Spirit without measure. The the apostles did not receive the Holy Spirit without measure. The one who received the Spirit without measure abundantly was Christ Himself. Christ Himself receives the Holy Spirit without any measure. And then, by measure, by weight, by increments, He gives us the Holy Spirit and fills us with the Holy Spirit. Causes the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. This happens to us partially and incrementally. Partially and incrementally. But Christ himself received the Holy Spirit without measure. He had the the Holy Spirit and the oil of joy above his companions. According to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of, in a figurative way, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it says in Hebrews 1, verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That is, God the Father has anointed Christ with the oil of gladness, meaning the Holy Spirit above us, above Christ's companions or friends, us. This is what God has done. So if the Holy Spirit is given to Christ without measure, and then the Holy Spirit is measured out and distributed to us by gifts, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, by our regeneration of the Holy Spirit, if these things are measured and given and distributed to us, where else shall we go? Where else shall we go is the point John is making. Where else should we go? If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in harmony to give us the grace of the Holy Spirit, then there is no other place to go. It's only in the God of the Bible, the Holy Trinity of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it would be foolish for us to seek truth, to seek wisdom, to to seek anything that's good for our eternal life elsewhere. We have it right here. Further, verse 35. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The first point we notice is that the Father loves the Son. And this love is a very unique love. It's a love that we do not know. It's a love that we have not experienced. In their sense, in that sense, the Father loving the Son. Jesus repeats this in John 5, John 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. The Father loves the Son in this unique way because The Son of God is the Beloved of the Father. This is my Beloved Son. Hear Him. Right? That was the voice of the Father speaking at the baptism of Christ. And also even at the uh, transfiguration of Christ. This is my Beloved Son. Hear Him. So if the Father loves the Son in this unique, special, supernatural way, then we should love the Son. If the Father loves the Son like this, why don't we? We should. We should love the Son of God just as the Father loves the Son of God. Because we cannot make a claim to knowing God unless we know the Son. We cannot make a claim to loving God unless we love the Son of God. Moreover, verse 35 and has given all things into his hand all things not only because the father loves the son but also because the father has empowered the son the son has all authority all power like he said matthew 28:18 all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations all authority is in the hand of the Son. He's got all the power in the world. So if He has all the power, all the authority in the world, why go elsewhere? Why go anywhere else? Is He not, after His ascension, seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty on high? He's at the right hand of the Father. Why is it said in the Bible, the right hand of the Father? Because the right hand is typically the strong hand, the hand of power. And that's what the son has. And he has that power to execute and to use for our benefit, such as in preaching the gospel. That's why he says, go make disciples of all the nations. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The power of Christ. The power of Christ. Speaking of the resurrection, this speaking of the resurrection will we'll begin at verse 23. First Corinthians 15 23. But each in his own order Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom. To the God and Father. The he who delivers up is Christ. He delivers up the kingdom. To the God and Father. When? When he has abolished. All rule. And all authority. And power. For he must reign. Until he has put all his enemies. Under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished. Is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Ultimately, Christ in verse 24 When he returns, he will abolish all rule, all authority and power. Christ will abolish all of that. Meantime, verse 25, he is reigning, reigning at the right hand of the Father. He's reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So he is a powerful king with all authority over the whole world. Ultimately, he will abolish death. And after he has put all things in subjection under his feet, He's going to stamp out all other powers. When he subjects everyone and everything under his feet, then he will deliver up all to the Father. So Christ, he has all power. All things are given to him. If all things are given to him, if he has power, why do we seek power or answer to prayer in lifeless and dead things. Whether the materialistic things of the world or actually in idolatry. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. It is all in Christ. So, no worries, no anxiety. Christ has all the power. Verse 36, John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That is actually a summary of this whole chapter. It's a summary of the whole chapter. That's what was announced to Nicodemus, that's what will be announced to everyone. It will be, or that is, a summary of this whole chapter. Believe in the Son. Belief is necessary and not belief in anyone, but belief especially in the Son or only specifically in the Son is eternal life obtained. That's a clear statement. That's clearly taught throughout Scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John fourteen, six. We know that there is salvation in no one else. That's what's required, belief in the Son. However, notice he says, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see the contrast? Notice the synonym he used for belief. For belief, the opposite is disobedience. Either we believe or we disobey. Either we believe or we disobey. The scripture speaks in this way. Why does the, the, the scripture speak in this way? That either we believe or we disobey. Because the moment we are told, the moment we receive a command that we must believe, we are told, Jesus died on the cross, therefore you must believe. Right? Right? So once we're told like that, it becomes a command that we must obey. So if we don't obey the command, then we have disobeyed. That's how the Scripture looks at it. Now, notice with me Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Obedient to the faith. An interesting phrase, is it not? Well, that's just like what John 3.36 says. Either we believe in the Son or we do not obey the Son. But if we believe in the Son, we are becoming obedient to the faith. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Romans 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The obedience of faith. If we believe then we have obeyed the commandment to believe in the gospel. Therefore, we are told that we have this obedience of faith. And Hebrews 3, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, 3, 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Verse 18, he says they were disobedient. Verse 19, he says they were unbelievers. Unbelief. If we believe, we are obeying. If we disbelieve, we are disobeying. Those are the only options given to us. And there is is no possibility of eternal life. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Why? Because we refuse to believe in who he is and the words that he spoke about who he is and what he came to do. There is no eternal life. Only one thing remains. It says, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides. Abides on him. We read earlier or sang earlier from Psalm 2. Do homage to the Son, or kiss the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. His wrath, the wrath of the Son of God. Here in John 3:36, he calls it the wrath of God. And it is true, the wrath of God the Father is of a, a real wrath Psalm 7:11 God is a righteous judge and a god who has indignation every day. This is very true of God the Father. But what we must not miss is that it's also true of the son of God. It's also true of the son of God because people love to make a dichotomy and a distinction. They want to create a breach between the character of the Father and the character of the Son. They cannot do so. It's impossible in Scripture to do so. This wrath of God, which comes from the Father, it comes by means of, by the agency of, the Son of God. And our relationship to the Son of God will either produce uh, reconciliation and peace and harmony, love and mercy and kindness, it will either produce that or it's going to produce the righteous wrath or righteous indignation of the Father and the Son because we have not believed in the Son. Proof. Let's see some proof of this. First, let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We need to undermine and contradict This misconception about Christ. We need to do so. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6.16 Judgment is coming upon the people. 6.16 And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For a great For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In 16, they say, from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's a reference to the Father, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. And in verse 17, it says, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? No one can withstand the wrath of the father and the son according to verse 17 the wrath of the father and the wrath of the son nobody can withstand that wrath when judgment comes he also in revelation 6:16 6, he does something he uses this phrase which is a very ironic phrase when you think of a lamb you don't think of a lamb that is angry You think of a lamb that is gentle, docile, quiet, right? That does not have the power, that does not have the wrath of a lion, right? But he's trying to fix a misconception that we have about Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and says that he has wrath. The lamb that has love is also the lamb that has wrath. Revelation 19, Revelation 19, the wrath of the Lamb executed for the Father. Revelation 19, 11, 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now who is this on the white horse who's called Faithful and True? Who is it? Verse 12. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is this coming on the horse? Who is it who's called faithful and true? Verse 13, the word of God. Verse 16, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's none other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who also has wrath. Now, someone might say, well, those passages are figurative, apocalyptic passages. They are figurative passages, so we can't take them literally because that's poetry and a figure of speech. Wrong. Wrong. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we have a literal passage, a straightforward passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1.5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Jesus and His mighty angels are going to come in flaming fire. Why flaming fire? Flaming fire because of the wrath of God, the furious wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. That wrath of God remains on all who reject Christ. Christ is the one who came from heaven, the one that the Father loves, in whose hand the Father has given all things, Who has the Spirit without measure? He is the one who testifies of the true nature of God and of us and of our need for salvation. Let's believe in him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.